That's, that's part of the gift of resurrection life is not only the eternal resurrection life, it's also you can take off those grave clothes that abound you in all kinds of despair and leave them at the foot of the cross forever. Asking life's why questions. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. In at least one point in everyone's life, a circumstance arises where all we can do is ask, why? Why did this happen? Why am I in this situation? The Gospel of John gives us a glimpse into God's powerful answer. Here's David with part two of his sermon, Lost to Life. Now, first of all, you need to know Jesus is a big boy, he's a big God, and he can handle it when we ask him if questions, when we ask him why questions, because life is filled with why questions, things we just don't understand. Mary didn't understand why Lazarus had died, so she asked Jesus, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, skeptics, again, use this kind of experience to say this. If your God is good and there's suffering in the world, he must not be good. Now, now how do you respond to that? Well, well, first of all, you need to say that God is not the author of evil. We're going to look at that in just a second. But, but secondly, you need to say that in order for you to understand good, there's got to be evil. Uh, for example, how do you know a line is straight? How do you know it? Unless there's also a crooked line. A crooked line's existence is all we can use to superimpose the reality of what is a straight line. So we can't know the straight line of God's goodness unless there's also evil. Now, God didn't author evil, but God permitted evil, and one of the reasons he did so was to allow us a choice because he doesn't want us to be automatons in our love relationship with him. He wants us to freely choose to follow him. So we've got to choose against evil to choose his goodness in order to faithfully follow him. Though he's not the author of evil, he allowed the reality and potential of evil, but it was the enemy, Satan, who led the rebellion in heaven who brought evil into this world. God permitted it, but God is not the author of it. He permits it to continue to exist because he wants us to continue to choose the straight line, not the crooked line. We can't know his goodness and how to choose for him unless we know evil, that crooked line as well. So how did evil get into this world? It's easy to understand biblically. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created this world perfectly, and he put Adam and Eve, his first people, in the garden, a man and a woman. They lived in perfect harmony with one another, with God, with nature, in every possible way. And God said to them in Genesis 2, 17, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree and you decide you want to determine what's good and evil, then you will surely die. You, you see, death was never intended in God's created order in original intent in the Garden of Eden. That death was also twofold. Uh, first of all, they'd die spiritually. Then secondly, they would die physically spiritually in that their relationship with God would be forever severed, and then physically, their physical bodies would be corrupted with sin, and ultimately, they would die. Well, we see in Genesis 3 that the devil, the, the one who allowed evil to come into our world, who in John 10.10 10, we read earlier, his job description is given to us by Jesus to kill, 
steal, and destroy. He is the manifestation of death in this world. And so he tempts Eve and said, did God really say don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doubting the word of God, and then making her think that she didn't fully have control of her life and that God was a celestial killjoy in keeping her from enjoying all that she should enjoy. So the enemy offered the fruit from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Eve ate of it. And then we don't know where Adam was. He could have been right there. Maybe he was somewhere else in the garden. But eventually he gave it, she gave it to him as well, and he ate of it. And it says that they had a glory in the garden where they were able to walk with God. Old-time commentators believe that glory was the light of God, that they lived in such a beautiful light that it covered their bodies in every possible way. Genesis 2.24 says they were naked and unashamed, that they probably had that beautiful glory, that light all around them. And some commentators believe that when Eve ate, that light went out, just went out. And she knew that she was naked and she felt shame. And Adam, when he ate, that same light went out. And he knew that he was naked and ashamed. And in an interesting, God comes to them immediately. God's always seeking you, always inviting you to himself. In your greatest sin and rebellion against him, he's still seeking you out. And he asked the question, where are you? Now, he knew where they were, but they were hiding in their fig leaves. So interesting, not just around their midsections, but all over their bodies, like a camouflaged soldier, probably with just the eyes open, covered with animal skins, bloodshed trying to cover them. They were trying to find in their own effort a way to cover their sin, and, and God came to them. Where are you? And what's so fascinating is he asked Adam, what have you done? And Adam blamed Eve. <laughs> the blame game started there, not wanting to confront our own sin, not confession, but blame. And then Eve blames the serpent. And we all know the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Whoops. Sorry, just had to throw that in to keep you interested in the message. But isn't it interesting, the blame game started in Genesis 3, and it's continued to this day, dear friends, as we blame anybody and everybody except ourselves for confronting our sin. And I really believe if Adam and Eve at that moment had confessed their sins and understood the blood shed by those animals and the true covering in God's grace and mercy, I think they could have been restored. Eden could have been restored, but they refused to do so. And then in Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of one who will come and crush the head of the serpent who causes all this death to come into this world. So don't you see, to the skeptic we say, evil isn't from God. Evil is our rebellion against God following the dictates of our enemy, Satan, and we are the ones who invited it into this world, and we are the ones who continue this whole death trap. It's not God. He is so good and loving. He has come to this world in Jesus to try to woo us into that love relationship so we'll operate in a love relationship with him that in the the second part of John 10, 10, as the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus says, here's why I came. I came to give life and to give it to you abundantly. So abundant life is in Jesus, and God hates death. He never wanted to be a part of death. He didn't want it in his once good, perfect creation. And indeed, what you have in the world today as people try to figure out who God is, here are your options. First of all, people, skeptics especially, say there's no God. If there's evil and hatred and death, etc., there can be no God. Secondly, there are deists who kind of believe God is 
distant and transcendent and just way up there has kind of wound up this world's clock and steps way back for it to unwind and isn't involved at all. And the suffering is caused by, you know, what? <laughs> As a Christian deist, you'd have to say it's by the fall, but God's still not involved at all in trying to make it well. The third one is Eastern religions uh, believe that there is a yin and a yang, a kind of a dualism in the deity, and they're constantly at odds with one another. So you just got to live this life knowing there's good and evil, there's pain and suffering along with joy and happiness, and that's just kind of the way it is. And of course, the fourth option is the Christian faith, which is what I believe, that God so loved this world that he entered this world and he took on human flesh and suffered with us to the point of death on a cross. One of the major reasons I'm a Christian is because of a God on a cross that God has entered our suffering with us, but promised that that suffering is not going to last forever and that one day, one day, Jesus is going to return and eliminate all of that pain and suffering from this world and has also given us the conquering of death through his resurrection. And if we're in him and he's in us, where he goes, we got to go. It's like an engine pulling a caboose. Wherever the engine goes, the caboose goes. If we're connected to Jesus, he's in heaven with a resurrection body. We're going to get the same thing one day we have to because of our union life with him. I choose to be a Christian because of God on a cross, and he's entered into this world with all of his suffering. Now, in verse 33, we see that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, when he saw all the weeping around him, he was greatly troubled. That, that word greatly troubled in, in the Greek literally means snorting. It, it is like a war horse getting ready to march into battle who snorts on its high haunches and gets ready to run toward the enemy. His spirit is greatly troubled and in distress. He's snorting against the enemy because when he saw the weeping, he's not crying because he lost his good friend Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was dead. He'd said at Pythabra several days beforehand, we're going back to Bethany, where I will raise him from the dead for the glory of God. He knew he was going to raise him. Why would he be weeping and sad because of Lazarus' death? No, he was weeping because everybody else was weeping. He was weeping because there was so much sadness over the reality of death. And folks, Jesus is getting ready to go to war. That's what he's doing right now. He's getting ready to go to war giving an evidence, a foretaste of what's going to happen in his own resurrection by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, we have this promise, and then one day Jesus is going to come back and restore this world, and I want to make a quick comment here. What do we do in between? Well, we take all of this evil and we work it for good. We take Genesis 50, 20 language and the evil that surrounds us, the evil one minute for evil, but we know God meant it for good, and we use it for good. And here I think of Kevin and, and um, Emily Ratliff, who lost their little baby girl, Claire, to brain cancer. And I, I had to do the funeral, and it was so painful to see this life so quickly snuffed out. And I saw Emily and Kevin grieving with such great depth over the loss of their child. But you know what they did? They said, but God. We're not going to let this be the final word. And they started something called Claire's Army to raise money in order to help parents who are going through this very same thing they went through with their children with cancer. And, and folks, I just want you to know that this past week, uh, we have sent a check to Claire's Army and Kevin and Emily of $10,000. 
because their work is so beautiful, magnificent, claiming something evil to use it for good for the glory of God. And I just thought you'd be excited to know that we're supporting that kind of work, that kind of effort, because we believe what God, what the evil one meant for evil, God uses for good. And we see that with Kevin and Claire. So until Jesus comes back and restores everything perfectly, we're to work for him, be a part of an army that defeats evil and uses it for good. And it also says here, by the way, that Jesus' spirit was deeply troubled, that his heart deep inside of him was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Um, Let me just make one quick statement here. Jesus' spirit. On the cross, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let me just remind you, the spirit and the soul are synonymous biblically. So you are not a body with a soul or spirit. You are a soul or spirit with a body. So what you need to focus on is that born-again soul and spirit. That's your true identity, dear friends. That's who you are in our culture as we are being beset by identity politics. People finding their identity in the color of their skin, things that are outward, their ethnicity, or what's happened to them. That's their identity. We need to know as Christians, our identity is in Christ, his born-again love in us. And we're called to love him and love our neighbors. And what solves the world is our understanding that we are spirits with a body. And we are defined by what goes on inside of us in that spirit. And as we love not only other Christians, but this world, yes, even our enemies. And we love, 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 and love. We conquer the power of sin and death. We overcome identity politics, which are just dividing our nation terribly. We walk as one in Jesus, male and female, Jew and Greek, black and white, This ethnicity and this ethnicity all coming together in the body of Christ called the church, working together as an army to defeat evil and bring about good. I just needed to say that as well as skeptics look at Christians sometimes, and we need to be able to say this is who we really are in Christ. My identity is in him and him alone. Let's go to verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, Come and see. Uh, Verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. Easy one to memorize, isn't it? John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Again, why? Because Lazarus had died? No. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wept by what sin and death had done to God's once perfect created order. He hated it, and it caused him to weep profoundly. And the the implication is in the Greek of this word weep is no sound coming out, just huge tears flowing from your eyes. So can you imagine Jesus as he's being led to Lazarus's tomb, not wailing and mourning like everybody else, but huge crocodile tears just flowing from his eyes because he sees what death has caused to God's once perfect world, not only with Lazarus, but with his family and all the other consolers who had come there as well. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus really loved Lazarus. He was a very close personal friend, and he was weeping because of his love for his friend and what death had done to him. But some of them said, could not he who opened eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Another skeptic's question. Why didn't God do something? Why didn't God intervene? 
And we'll see that Jesus did this for the glory of God because there was something bigger that he was doing. But that's what faith means, folks. And as the skeptic asks, why didn't God do something? You can always say God answers prayer in three ways. Remember we covered this last week? He says yes, sometimes immediately. He gives us what we want. It's a wonderful day when that happens. He says wait, but remember, delay doesn't mean God's denial. He waited four days to come heal Lazarus. Sometimes Jesus delays in his answer. The third answer is not no. Sometimes we say yes, wait, no, no. The no is, I've got something better for my glory, and you're good. I've got something better for my glory, and you're good. And you just have to trust me. The seeming no is a time to build your faith. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do, but he's doing this to build their faith to see something greater that God is going to do. That's part of the gift of resurrection life is not only the eternal resurrection life, it's also you can take off those grave clothes that abound you in all kinds of despair and leave them at the foot of the cross forever. Dear friends, don't you see that there is a life here in this corrupted body, but there's a life yet to come in a perfect body. Similarly, we're like the caterpillar who is glued to the hot asphalt as it squiggles down the road, but then one day it climbs up a tree or maybe the side of our house and a film forms around it, a chrysalis, and it's filled with all kinds of beautiful liquids. And over time, that caterpillar that could be easily smushed, that could only live on the ground, changes, is metamorphosed into a beautiful new butterfly that can leave that chrysalis and fly free. Folks, you're not a Bedouin going from tent to tent. You are a permanent citizen of a new home. That is your eternal destination. Live in that new reality. And you're also not a caterpillar causing all kinds of messes on the road. You are a butterfly. And you've got to have a new body to be able to fly. That new body is coming up. It's coming up. Believe that today. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, David and I talk about some great tips on maintaining a great marriage. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, hungry, we'll work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. 
Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. It's great being with you as well, Jen. Well, in this morning's e-devotion, you wrote about the five-year-from-now rule for marriages. And I think this is great advice that I think many of our listeners would like to hear about. Well, thank you, Jen. I hope it is. It's something that I've come up with in 40-plus years of ministry, and I counsel couples in trouble to do this. And I've had many come to me and tell me that it's been great when they've practiced it and it's actually saved their marriage. Again, what is it? I say to couples, look, lock the door from the outside in your marriage. Make sure you honor covenant. You stood before God, your family, and other witnesses, and you said on the day that you were married, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, forsaking all others, I'm covenanted to you in this relationship. And whether you knew it or not, you said those vows before God and others, and he takes them very seriously. So do this for me. Lock the door from the outside. Say we can't get out. Say for five years, we're going to practice committing to love one another. The only definition of love in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Say, I'm going to practice being patient with you, kind with you, loving toward you, not jealous, selfish, or rude, not prideful in any way, etc. I'm going to practice loving you as Jesus has loved me. And just see if you do that over the next five years, if at the end of those five years, your marriage will not have taken significant steps forward toward health and wholeness. And not only is this a good thing to do for your children, because your children need stability and security in your home, it also is a very practical something you can do to save your marriage. So Mm -hmm. I've had numbers of couples who've come to me and said, you know, we just didn't like each other. We wanted out like all human beings. We were different. We didn't think we shared values, etc. We practiced your five-year rule. We gave our lives to Jesus. We locked the door from the outside. We committed to love one another. And slowly but surely, we started to like each other. Mm. Slowly but surely, we started to love each other. And now after five years, I remember one particular lady came up to me with her husband. They're all over each other hugging. And I'm saying, go get a room. (laughs) They're all over each other. And I'm just saying it worked, didn't it? And she said, yes, it worked unbelievably. And I just wish every couple would just try it. It's a way to save marriages. It's a way to increase love. Well, I like this because it's so practical. It's giving a smart goal. You're not saying 50 years, although in our vows, like you said, you do commit the rest of your life to one another. But when you're in a crisis, I just think this is brilliant just to break those years down a little bit. And let's just take this one chunk at a time. It's brilliant. A five-year covenant and just see what happens. Your lives will change. And one other thing, Jen, you know, when couples divorce, something that's often forgotten about is all those collective memories you've shared Mm. together, especially if you've been married 10, 15, 20, 30 years. All of those collective memories of children, grandchildren, vacation times, they're gone. Hmm. Poof. In a moment, when you sign the divorce papers, 
gone. And that's so sad for me. Hey, mm-hmm. guard those collective memories. Keep them intact so that you can pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. That's heritage. Mm-hmm. And one way you can keep that heritage going is by locking the door from the outside and practicing the five-year covenant rule plan. Beautiful. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And if all of you would like to receive a daily Moment of Hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there free of charge, a daily Moment of Hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston, hoping you have a great weekend.